Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A strange device that sparked an international spy scandal. They have no idea what this is, but they know it definitely shouldn't be here. This is catastrophic. A splintered timber, the remains of a cataclysmic blast. Knocked down 230 square miles of forest in about three minutes' time. And the shocking discovery of 119 mummies in a cemetery. I imagine that they maybe thought there was some kind of magic going on. Across the United States, in the nation's most revered institutions, our celebrated history is on display. Wondrous treasures from the past, bizarre relics. But behind every amazing artifact is another tale to be told and a secret waiting to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. More than two centuries ago, it was the capital of the new nation. It was also home to one of America's most important thinkers, the statesman and inventor Benjamin Franklin. Today, an array of exhibits that capture the spirit of the man and his experiments fill the galleries of the Franklin Institute. But deep in its archives is the brainchild of another, more mysterious inventor. A bizarre wooden box outfitted with a single antenna and a metal loop. Frederick Bertley, a scientist and educator at the Franklin Institute, is immediately drawn to the strange device. The, for the first time I saw it, uh, I didn't know what it was. And it just looked oddly different. But even stranger than the way it looks, is the way it sounds. 
the best way for me to describe the sound is it's an Alfred Hitchcock um, soundtrack meets Scooby-Doo. It's called a theremin. One of the first electronic instruments ever made and one that can be played without being touched. But it's more than an odd footnote in musical history. This bizarre instrument played a part in triggering one of the biggest spy scandals of the century. 1920, St. Petersburg, Russia. A young physicist at a Russian research institute is working on an idea for a motion detector that uses electromagnetic forces. His name is Leon Theremin. But during his experiments, Theremin stumbles on something he didn't expect. Leon Theremin worked with magnetic coils that were attached to the antenna, and he noticed as he approached the antenna, he heard a weird sounding noise. Every time Theremin gets near the device, he disturbs its electromagnetic field, causing it to produce musical notes. Excited by his discovery, he puts aside his work on the motion detector and fine-tunes the instrument. But the gadget, which Theremin names after himself, is not an instant hit. It didn't get too much coverage until about two years later when he did a musical presentation for Lenin. Vladimir Lenin is the leader of the newly formed Soviet Union. He is so enchanted with the theremin that he sends its inventor abroad to show off the latest Soviet technology. Leon came to New York City and did three major shows, and his capacity to make the instrument sing really skyrocketed the attention around it, and he received major press. Thousands of Americans take up the new instrument. One of them is an 18-year-old prodigy named Clara Rockmore, who skyrockets to fame as a theremin virtuoso. She was doing shows all over the city, and she was a phenomenal hit. Theremin, who settles in New York, becomes smitten with Clara Rockmore. Together, they become fixtures of the music world and New York society. But after a decade in America, Leon Theremin's high-profile life comes to an abrupt end in 1938 when he mysteriously disappears. Because Leon Theremin was a foreigner and involved in really high-end technology, all kinds of rumors abounded. Was he involved in espionage? Was it related to some past history? There is even a story that Theremin had been abducted by Russian agents in the middle of the night, but no one can confirm it. Bottom line is he disappeared. Nobody had any idea if he was in the United States or off the continent. It would be over 20 years before the mystery is solved. When it unravels, it places the inventor at the heart of one of the most astounding spy stories ever told. 1952, Moscow. The U.S. and Soviet Union are locked in a Cold War and tensions are running high. At the U.S. Embassy, CIA agents discover a series of mysterious radio signals coming from somewhere inside their own building. Wasting no time, Agents scour the compound, looking for the source of the signals. Finally, in the ambassador's office, they find something suspicious. It's hidden in the United States seal. They open it up, and there's this very mysterious, strange-looking object that's got a long antenna. They have no idea what this is. But they know it definitely shouldn't be here. 
Not knowing what it was, they nicknamed it The Thing. The seal was given to the U.S. ambassador by Soviet school children as a goodwill gift in 1945. Agents now suspect that goodwill was not their only intention. After multiple tests, they figure out that it's this really complex, super advanced listening device. The CIA's worst fears are realized. The embassy has secretly been bugged for the past seven years. Who knows what national secrets have been revealed? The listening device only gets activated as you approach it and you disrupt the magnetic field around it. But if you weren't close to it, it would not be on, making it very, very difficult to detect. At the time, no one realized it. But the strange bugging device found in the U.S. Embassy had its origins in the musical sensation that had swept the U.S. two decades earlier. It would be another 10 years before the truth would finally be revealed. 1960, the renowned theremin virtuoso Clara Rockmore is on a publicity tour. She ends up in, in Moscow and she discovers that Leon Theremin is still alive. Startled by the news, Rockmore tracks down her one-time suitor. Amazingly, he is living right in Moscow. When they meet, the two friends are overjoyed to see each other. But one question lingers. Why did Theremin disappear more than 20 years earlier? He confides in her that he was abducted from the United States of America, brought back to the Soviet Union, and forced to work in a labor camp working specifically on spy devices to help the espionage during the Cold War. While working for the KGB, Leon Theremin created his second masterpiece, The Thing, one of the world's first covert bugging devices. It turns out the Theremin and The Thing are actually very similar in terms of the technology and how they function. When the truth comes out, the great inventor's influence is finally realized. Leon Theremin was a classic scientist and inventor in the truest sense, and that the impact of what he did has lasted for the entire century. He paved the way for listening devices, spy devices, bugging devices. Perhaps the eccentric inventor would never have had the inspiration for his bugging device without first coming up with this, one of the world's first electronic instruments, the theremin. Across the country, another epic drama unfolds around a very different piece of engineering. How did this expertly designed bridge fail so spectacularly? Next, on Mysteries at the Museum. Tacoma, Washington. Next door to the city's historic Union Station, the Washington State History Museum celebrates the region's past. Amidst the museum's many exhibits is this unassuming relic. Here's this massive 600-pound chunk of concrete and steel. It could be from a building, uh, some massive structure, maybe a dam. But this hunk of concrete is more than a piece of junkyard scrap. Not far from the museum is the spot where curator Fred Pointer found it. This was uh, approximately the area where the recovery of the fragment, the large 600-pound bridge fragment, was made. This is a remnant from one of the most catastrophic engineering failures in U.S. history, the collapse of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. 
it was a disaster that would forever change the way America builds its infrastructure. Why did this modern bridge fail so miserably? 1938. America is building up its infrastructure from coast to coast, including the growing northwestern city of Tacoma, Washington. To accommodate the growing population, the city proposes a massive undertaking, a giant bridge from Tacoma to the towns of the Kitsap Peninsula, stretching across the Puget Sound at its narrowest point. For such an ambitious project, the city looks for an equally ambitious bridge design. Opting out of a more conventional suspension bridge, the government chooses a more modern plan pioneered by Leon Moisef, one of the foremost bridge engineers in the world. Moisef was renowned for designing San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge. But it wasn't just his fame that landed him the job. I think really at the heart of the matter was the price tag. Moisef's design was only $6.4 million. It's a paltry sum for such a huge project almost half the cost of a more conventional bridge design. Moisef's able to cut costs because its plan is simple and modern, calling for the use of inexpensive and flawed steel girders in the construction. It would be a fateful decision. At its opening in July 1940, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge is the world's third longest suspension bridge, and it draws crowds with its sleek new design. But within the first few weeks, it's clear to authorities that there's a problem. In winds as little as three and four miles an hour, you can see the bridge deck bouncing up and down. The bridge is nicknamed Galloping Gertie and becomes famous for its bounce. All bridges are designed to accommodate movement, but authorities realize Gertie might be moving a bit too much. It's a problem they were hoping to fix quietly and quickly. They were aware that from the start that there were design issues and were working to correct them. They just didn't have enough time. November 7th, 1940, 7.30 a.m. Strong winds gust through the narrows from the southwest. By 9.30 a.m., the wind reaches 50 miles an hour. Galloping Gertie is swinging wildly from side to side. The bridge deck was going 45-degree angles one way, 45-degree angles another way. Fearing disaster, state police shut down the bridge. But one unlucky commuter has already paid his toll and is heading west on the span. Didn't actually make it very far before he had to abandon his vehicle. And when he got out of the vehicle, he was physically thrown to the ground by the force of the bridge movement. The driver manages to crawl to safety. Unfortunately, in the panic, he was unable to rescue his frightened dog in the back seat. 11.02 a.m., a 600-foot-long section of the roadway breaks free, thundering into the water below. The car plunges 200 feet into the narrows with the dog inside. The dog was the lone fatality of the bridge. By 11.10 a.m., the four-month-old Tacoma Narrows Bridge is in ruins. Its entire middle section lies on the bottom of Puget Sound in a twisted heap of steel and broken concrete. Across the country, people are stunned. How could this have happened? 
The Federal Works Agency appoints a panel of engineers to find out. Attention first turns toward the bridge's cost-cutting design, focusing on the cheap steel girders used in Leon Moisev's plan. But did the bridge's design cause it to fail? The answer came in March of 1941, when the Federal Works Agency panel releases its findings. Although it doesn't mention Leon Moisev by name, the report blames the collapse on the bridge's overly flexible design and flawed girders. In other words, the girders that were, had been used, they just didn't provide enough stability. They didn't make the bridge span rigid enough. More importantly, Moisef's design didn't account for aerodynamic forces that engineers of the day did not fully understand. On November 7th, constant winds whipped the bridge for hours without letting up. But the girders supporting the roadway didn't allow the wind to flow through. Instead, the solid sheet of metal caught and trapped the wind. This caused the bridge to twist like a ribbon. Under the stress, eventually the bridge's support snapped, sending it hurtling into the narrows. The torque was such that when the bridge deck collapsed, it did almost a complete 180 degrees as it was going down. The panel recommends that all future bridge designs be tested using 3D models in wind tunnels. It's a policy that still stands today. One of those wind tunnel tested bridges was Galloping Gertie's replacement, Sturdy Gertie. When it opened in 1950, the new Tacoma Narrows Bridge included a more traditional reinforced design with holes to allow wind to pass through. When the second bridge was opened, it helped bring a sense of closure to this event that had happened 10 years before. But inside the halls of the Washington State History Museum, this piece of concrete is a visceral reminder of the old Tacoma Narrows Bridge. Nearly 2,700 miles away in upstate New York, there's a very different kind of accident on display. How did this strange blob go from failed military experiment to one of the world's best-known toys? Find out next on Mysteries at the Museum. Rochester, New York, the gateway to the Finger Lakes region. It's also home to the only museum in the country dedicated solely to the study of toys. Among the board games and blocks sits a small, smooth plastic egg. Inside is a flesh-toned blob that can bounce, bend, stretch, and even flow like a liquid. It's silly putty time. But silly putty didn't start life as a plaything. What is silly putty? Its roots go back to World War II when even the most basic materials were in short supply. So how did this classic toy emerge out of a war shortage? 1941, the world is at war. Across the Pacific, Japan has seized control of the rubber-producing nations that supply 90% of America's raw rubber. And now, more than ever, the United States needs rubber for tires, boots, and almost every war machine. 
The staple material is so vital to the war effort that the U.S. government begins rationing rubber tires on the home front. But rationing will only help maintain supplies for so long. The war is in full swing and the country is desperate for a solution. What do you do for tires? What do you do for all the other things that rubber goes into? So it was a challenge for chemists and scientists to find rubber alternatives. With a crisis looming, the government calls on American industry to invent a substitute for rubber and help with the war effort. Among those who respond to the call is a chemical engineer named James Wright, who works at the General Electric Lab in New Haven, Connecticut. He kept combining different materials, kept putting things together, testing them. One day, he combined silicone oil and boric acid. What emerges from the test tube surprises Wright. Instead of a hard rubber-like material, the substance he's created is bouncy and gooey to the touch. Rubber is supposed to be strong and resilient. His new invention was unfortunately anything but. It oozed, it couldn't be molded. It was a colossal failure for what it was originally intended for. Wright returns to the drawing board, dismissing this new substance as an experiment gone wrong. But the story of this strange goo is far from over. Though the end of the war ends the need for a rubber substitute, General Electric is determined to find some use for this new bouncing goo and it sends samples to engineers and scientists around the world. They kept trying to find purposes for it. They tried for years, but they mostly just brought it out at parties so that they could amaze their friends and neighbors and say, isn't this astonishing goo? Look at what it can do. In 1949, the goo gives two of these guests, Ruth Fallgatter, a toy store owner, and Peter Hodgson, an ad man, an idea. Hodgson borrows $147 to buy the production rights from GE. Inspired by the upcoming Easter holiday, Hodgson hatches a plan. Rather than packaging it in clear plastic boxes, he packaged it as little eggs, and he was calling it Silly Putty. With an eye-catching package and a fun name, Hodgson convinces a large bookstore chain to sell the product at $1 a pop just one of those little fun things to pick up along with your other purchases. But its discovery by one influential customer would secure the goo and the ad man a spot in toy history forever. A writer from the New Yorker magazine saw it, fell in love with it, wrote a column in the fall of 1950, and then the world knew about Silly Putty people in the next three days after that New Yorker article ran ordered 250,000 eggs of silly putty. So it was the beginning of the big time. If you put it so, it'll go forever, like taffy. In the 1950s, TV ads featuring Peter Hodgson himself introduced silly putty to the rest of the world. The transformation from science experiment reject to sensational children's toy is complete. Today, more than 300 million eggs have been sold throughout the world. Silly Putty is one of those classic American novelties. It was going to be a one-hit wonder. It was going to make a little splash. But it's one of those toys that proves it has endurance. 
It's changed American history. It's changed popular culture. Silly Putty, from failed invention to classic toy with worldwide recognition and a place in the National Toy Hall of Fame. What emerged from a World War II-era test tube became a pleasant surprise. But a century earlier, what unexpectedly emerged from a Mexican cemetery has baffled scientists through the ages. The story unfolds next on Mysteries at the Museum. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Detroit, Michigan. The city of industry once manufactured the cars of the future. Now, one of its best-known institutions seeks to unlock the secrets of the past. Inside the Detroit Science Center, a startling and macabre exhibit is on display. A rare glimpse into the world of the dead. There are 36 corpses here. Men, women, and even children. They died two centuries ago. Yet their hair, nails, and even clothing are mysteriously preserved. These aren't the carefully prepared bodies of Egyptian royalty. These are an entirely different kind of mummy, and for decades, their discovery has baffled scientists. Bioanthropologist Ronald Beckett has spent years studying these peculiar specimens in an attempt to reveal their secrets. They look like you and me. 
they look alive almost. Some of them are wearing clothes, the clothes that they were buried in. So you get a sense that these were people. Who were these people? And why are they mummified? The answer lies in Mexico, 1865. In the mining city of Guanajuato, cemetery workers face an unpleasant task. Because of a state law, they must remove the buried bodies of those whose living relatives have failed to pay the cemetery fees. As the workers begin opening graves, they make a shocking discovery. In about one of every 10 graves, instead of long decomposed remains, they find perfectly preserved mummies. They expected to see bones, but it was a mummified human being. Mummification is not part of any burial tradition in the region, so locals are mystified by the strange corpses. The mummies from Guanajuato have been called accidental mummies. They weren't made intentionally. These were accidents of nature. But could natural conditions have possibly altered the basic process of death and decay? It must have been a huge mystery at the time. I imagine they maybe thought there was some kind of magic going on. Far from magic, the basic principles of mummification are rooted in science. A good description of what a mummy is would be anything that has not decomposed. For some reason, the process of decomposition was halted and stopped. So you have tissues that remain in the skin, the the hair, sometimes even the eyes. But what exactly stopped these bodies from decomposing? Early on, Mexican authorities wondered if it might have something to do with the local lifestyle in Guanajuato. Perhaps it was something in, in the food that they ate. Perhaps it was the high altitude air that they had. But if all those buried here shared the same air and food, why did some bodies become mummified while others did not? We'd have more than 100 mummies. There would be literally thousands of mummies in that cemetery, and there aren't. So if it's not the food or the air, could it be something in the soil? The area is very rich in minerals, and they suspected that it was something in the water or in the soil made them into mummies. But this theory doesn't stand either because none of the mummified bodies were ever buried underground. Instead, they were entombed in crypts stacked above ground seven rows high. Today, Dr. Beckett and his team from Quinnipiac University are probing another theory. Using some of the most advanced technology available, they closely examine each mummy. We use x-rays, CT scans. We use all these tools to look at the mummies, to look through the mummies, and to look inside the mummies. They suspect that the clue to solving the mystery lies in the crypts themselves. One thing that's key to this entire decomposition process is moisture. All the microorganisms, they all require moisture for this process to continue. The crypts of Guanajuato are made of limestone, a rock known for absorbing moisture. When the tombs were sealed just right, a completely dry, airtight environment was created. You can almost imagine a, a baking oven. The crypt was warm. It was made of materials that wicked moisture out of the air as moisture came out of the body. It was dehydrated. And if we can dehydrate, we can stop decomposition. If we stop decomposition, you're mummified. And from the medical scans Dr. Beckett has amassed, 
the last pieces of the puzzle finally fall into place. We've learned that some of them are in different states of mummification. It seems to depend upon what crypt they're in, the time of year that they're buried, even the condition that they were in when they were buried, how dehydrated were they at the time of death. So it was those environmental factors um, that, that, that mummified them, and it mummified them to varied degrees. Thanks in part to modern science, a centuries-old secret is finally laid to rest. The mysteries behind the accidental mummies of Guanajuato are now revealed. For those who visit the exhibit, it's an opportunity to look into a rarely preserved past. The mummies are teachers. They teach us about their life and times, but they teach us about our humanness as well. Looking at a mummy, we can see us. 2,400 miles away in the Pacific Northwest, a very different kind of natural phenomenon takes scientists by surprise. Coming up on Mysteries at the Museum. Gifford Pinchot National Forest, Southwest Washington. This majestic preserve is one of the oldest national forests in the U.S. But within these 1.4 million acres, a sleeping giant lurks. Inside the Johnston Ridge Observatory, one of its victims sends a visceral message. It's about three feet wide, about 15 feet tall. It's something that lived in a mountain landscape and died there suddenly. It's the splintered remains of what was once a mighty 100-foot hemlock tree. One of thousands snapped like toothpicks by a force 1,600 times more powerful than an atomic bomb, the eruption of Mount St. Helens. How did this volcano unleash a blast far more devastating than scientists ever imagined? Spring 1980, Mount St. Helens, a 10,000-foot volcano in the Cascade Range, has been erupting for nearly four weeks. It's the volcano's first sign of life in 123 years. A volcanologist named David Johnston is monitoring the activity. From his observation post five miles from the mountain, Johnston is riveted by the geological drama. The entire north flank of Mount St. Helens is bulging outwards. It's a sign that magma, rivers of molten rock from deep underground, are rising up through the volcano. It all suggests that the volcano is ready for a big eruption. For Johnston and others looking on, it's cause for excitement. Most geologists that were watching Mount St. Helens expected it to do what it did in the past. And in the past, Mount St. Helens has been a ash producer, a vertical eruption. Geological records show that Mount St. Helens has erupted periodically over the eons, blowing great clouds of ash, gas, and rock skyward. These were standard vertical eruptions, typical of conical-shaped volcanoes like Mount St. Helens. And in May 1980, this is what many anticipate is about to happen once again. That eruption went on for many, many weeks. So people gathered at the volcano to watch the explosions. There were residents, people who had cabins. Some people were not taking what was happening seriously. It was a mistake that would cost many their lives. May 18th at 8.32 a.m. To onlookers' astonishment, the bulging north flank of the mountain breaks loose. About six-tenths of a cubic mile of rock 
and ash came cascading down the side of the mountain at more than 100 miles an hour. It's the largest landslide in recorded history, but it's nothing compared to what happens next. Suddenly, Mount St. Helens explodes. Twenty-four megatons of thermal energy blast through the forest in a wave of superheated ash and rock. Hot fragmented rock sweeping across the landscape crashed into the ridges north of the volcano where it knocked down 230 square miles of forest in about three minutes' time. Countless trees, like the one on display at the Johnston Ridge Observatory, are left splintered and uprooted by the force of the blast. The heat that's unleashed in the blast melts glaciers, causing giant floods that bury roads, bridges, and houses more than 14 miles from the mountain. Effectively, in less than 10 minutes, the volcano completely transformed and reshaped an entire landscape. In the wake of the eruption, the once lush region now seems apocalyptic a wasteland devoid of movement. Silent, uh, no animal activity, uh, very little sign of any life at all. For the people within the blast range, 10 minutes was not enough to get to safety. The eruption was not something that you could uh, flee from or get away from. People were hit by falling trees or hit directly by the blast. 57 lives are lost during the cataclysmic explosion, including that of volcanologist David Johnston. His camp, five miles from the mountain, was overtaken by the blast within 30 seconds. When the ash finally settles, the nation is stunned. Why did this extraordinarily powerful eruption so surprise the scientific community? As it turns out, the bulging north flank of the mountain that David Johnston had been watching offered a clue. The hot magma that was causing the bulge near the summit had also cracked the mountain's foundation. When the mountain became too top-heavy, it gave way, causing the massive landslide. Very quickly, the sliding down of the side of the mountain opened up the magma chamber inside the volcano, and superheated groundwater and trapped gases were suddenly released in a massive sideways explosion. It explains why the blast came as such a shock. No one expected the eruption to come straight at them. Today, 30 years after this pristine landscape was ravaged by one of the world's greatest forces, it once more begins to show signs of life. And inside the Johnston Ridge Observatory, named after David Johnston, the volcanologist who died on this ridge 30 years ago, is this splintered relic, another stark reminder of the geologic fury that lies underfoot. 3,000 miles away, by the Chesapeake Bay, a worn sea chest tells its own harrowing tale. A maritime enigma that baffles the United States Navy to this day. Still to come on Mysteries at the Museum. Newport News, Virginia. One of the busiest shipping ports on the East Coast and a major hub for the American military. At the heart of this teeming port is the Mariner's Museum. 
Here, countless artifacts chronicle every era of maritime history. But within this collection is one item linked to an astonishing mystery. It's made of wood, covered in peeling paint, and block lettering hints at its purpose. It's a U.S. Navy storage chest from the First World War. If the lettering on it is correct, and we believe it to be, the chest at one point was aboard the USS Cyclops. The USS Cyclops was a colossal ship that has since passed into legend. More than 90 years ago, this vessel and its 309 crew members disappeared without a trace. Nothing remains of the ship except for this supply box. What happened to the USS Cyclops? And does this ordinary box unlock any clues to the ship's whereabouts? It's a tale filled with treachery, treason, and the mysterious forces of the sea. 1917, World War I is raging. To supply the war effort all over the world, the United States uses massive new cargo ships like the USS Cyclops. These vessels are designed to carry everything from iron ore to diesel fuel. February 1918, after refueling U.S. battleships off the coast of South America, the Cyclops stops in the Caribbean port of Barbados to take on supplies. Logs from Barbados indicate that after a few days, the ship and its 309 crew members depart the island with a belly full of cargo bound for Baltimore. But the Cyclops doesn't arrive in Baltimore on schedule. For three weeks, officials scan the horizon, hoping she has simply been delayed en route. But after a month without communications or sightings, the Navy has to face facts. The Cyclops has disappeared. At first, Navy brass assumes that the Cyclops has become a casualty of war. There was the suspicion that a German U-boat or German mines perhaps had destroyed the vessel. However, there was no debris. Then, Navy investigators are confronted by another shocking possibility. A telegram from an American diplomat in Barbados, Brockholst Livingston, presents some alarming information about the Cyclops captain, Lieutenant Commander George Worley. Livingston actually makes a very pointed comment in his telegram, saying that the crew referred to Worley as a damn Dutchman. Now, in the jargon of the day, Dutchman doesn't mean they're Dutch from the Netherlands. It's referring instead to Deutsch, German. When investigators discover old records showing Worley had changed his name years earlier, and he was in fact German, a disturbing new theory emerges. Worley has betrayed his crew and taken the ship to Germany. It's the Navy's best explanation and soon they have an opportunity to test it. 1919, armistice is declared. The Allied victory finally gives the United States a chance to interrogate German officials and review their military records. But U.S. investigators in post-war Germany uncover absolutely nothing about the USS Cyclops or Commander Worley. And eventually, the Navy abandons the theory, leaving the mystery of the Cyclops unsolved. More than 30 years would pass before an unsettling new theory emerges. 
In the 1960s, a group of history buffs proclaimed the Cyclops is part of a chilling pattern. Amateur historians and researchers begin to notice that there's a certain stretch of ocean where it seems like a lot of ships disappeared without a trace. The troubling phenomenon is sparked by the disappearance of an entire squadron of fighter planes on a routine test flight in 1945. Just before all radio contact was lost, the pilots reported strange cloud cover and unusual weather. The five pilots and their planes were never seen again, and officials are left mystified. Since then, researchers have charted dozens of other disappearances in this stretch of ocean between Bermuda, Puerto Rico, and Miami. The theory becomes developed that there's something about this area that is related to all these vessels and aircraft disappearing. The area would soon pick up a notorious nickname, the Bermuda Triangle. And many now believe it is the graveyard of the Cyclops. Everything from rogue waves to supernatural forces are said to explain the region's seemingly mystical properties. But amid the wild speculation, basic science may offer a more plausible explanation. It is an area where the Gulf Stream is hitting the Atlantic. There are strong currents in the area. It's possible that a wave-wind combination of the two basically tilted her over to uh, the point that uh, she sunk pretty quickly. If the Cyclops sunk, the turbulent currents of the Gulf Stream may have swept away the wreckage. Nearly a century later, no physical traces of the Cyclops have ever been recovered. The fate of the cargo ship remains the Navy's biggest unsolved mystery. And today, all that remains from this missing ship is this sea chest. It was given to the museum in 1941 by a local man who found it hidden in a crawl space under his house. A mysterious relic from an equally mysterious ship. Unfortunately, the empty chest contains no clues as to what befell the crew of the Cyclops. Having an artifact that came off of USS Cyclops is important because the vessel was lost at sea with all hands. That's 309 people who never had a chance to tell their stories. From ingenious instruments and bewildering mummies to galloping bridges and bouncing goo, these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.